Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. We're going to go ahead and dismiss our three to five-year-olds to their class, three to five-year-olds. Y'all can go ahead and head out the back doors. And for the rest of us, we're going to be continuing in our Luke series. Uh, So we are in week three of a hundred weeks or so of the book of Luke um, over the next couple of years. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Luke chapter one. Verses 26 through 38 is what we're going to look at. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a mangled, hard, uh, hardback black one around you somewhere um, that we just found in the closets. And so uh, feel free to use those. If you don't own a Bible, that's our, uh, that's our cheap gift to you as well. Uh, but it's worth everything, you know, so it's, it's great. Um, but anyways, Luke 1, 26 through 38 is where we're going to be this morning. And what we're going to be looking at is a simple town, a simple couple, a simple faith, and a significant Savior. So if you take notes, those are our four points uh, that we're going to be looking at. And within those points, today you're going to be meeting uh, Mary, one of the greatest women, one of the most significant women uh, in the history of the world. And so before I sound uh, too Roman Catholic, we're going to pray and, uh, and dive into this. So Father God, it's my greatest joy and, and just honor to be able to preach your word this morning. And it's my request on behalf um, that you would send us the Holy Spirit as you sent the Holy Spirit to Mary. That as she learned of Jesus, that we would also learn of Jesus. As she responded in faith to the revelation of Christ, that we would also respond in faith to the revelation of Jesus. So God, as we open your word this morning, we ask for faith like hers And we ask for it in her son Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so in the past, as we kind of set this up, you're there in in Luke 1, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But in the past, you've heard me use a term before uh, called proto-evangelion, all right? And so I'm going to kind of, uh, this is a pop quiz. How many of you uh, remember me saying the term proto-evangelion at some point, all right? How many of you remember what it means? Is anybody that's not an elder in here? First gospel, all right, awesome, all right, thank you. First gospel, all right, so Mary is a significant woman in history, but her story actually begins with the first woman, Eve. And so I'll begin in Genesis 3.15, and you'll see the correlation here, but the first woman that God made was named Eve. God created Adam and Eve, and he placed them in a garden, and he gave them uh, value, dignity, worth, Uh, He called them to cultivate the garden, uh, to steward the garden, to have oversight over the garden. And he gave them essentially just one rule. Don't eat of uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But other than that, you can enjoy anything and everything that, that was in creation. Like they had a good thing going. But sadly, our first parents disobeyed, all right? They sinned against God. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and rather than leaving them in the punishment that actually came with that disobedience, rather than leaving them in their death, in the headed for hell, God came to them in Genesis 3, and he did something miraculous. He pursued them as he pursues us, and he spoke to them as he speaks to us. And in Genesis 3.15, we get what is called the Proto-Evangelion. We get the first gospel that was ever preached. 
And so God shows up and he preaches against Satan, the serpent, the dragon who tempted Adam and Eve. And God says this to the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so what is the answer to human sin? What is the answer to their their rebellion? What's the answer to their folly and their separation from God? Well, he tells them there is going to be a son that will come through the lineage of this woman, Eve, who will one day be born, and this son will ultimately crush the head of the serpent who deceived them. But in so doing, he will also bruise the heel of this son that will be born. So from this point forward, as history just continues to play itself out, the people of God are holding on to this prophecy. They're holding on to this promise that, hey, what we did that was wrong, what we broke, God is ultimately going to fix it and solve it through a son that will eventually be born. So they're just on the lookout for a son that will be born. And then as you kind of fast forward through, history proceeds forward. There's a prophet of God that's raised up, a man named Isaiah. And this is 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And Isaiah prophesies this. He says in Isaiah 7:14, and you've heard this if you've been around church, especially around Christmas time. He says, "Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." So he says, you cannot, you should not, you you will not miss this sign, the most significant birth that's ever going to happen, this son that was promised, you're not going to miss him coming because, get this, he's going to be born via a virgin. That that doesn't happen. And that's never happened in the history of the world. And so he says, when, when Jesus shows up, when this Messiah shows up, when this chosen one shows up that I have long prophesied already, and that you're now going to wait another 700 years for, you won't miss him because it's going to be a miracle when it happens. And honestly, this he says you you can't miss it. This son shall bear the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Thank you. This is is how Christmas disciples you. Okay, like you, you know that because we sing it every single year. Emmanuel, God with us. And what every false religion tries to do and what they're based on is really the lie in Genesis 3. The lie in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve is that they could actually become like God. That they could become God. That they could become part of the divine. But instead, what God is actually preaching and proclaiming to us is that God is willing to humble himself and become like us. And to become one of us. And to be able to send his son, Jesus, to come to us. And that's what we see as we come to Luke 1.26 is what was prophesied in Genesis 3.15 and what was prophesied in Isaiah 7.14 is finally happening. Several thousand years has already gone on from Adam all the way to Joseph and Mary. Several or 700 years from Isaiah to Joseph and Mary. And we finally find ourselves at the arrival of this promised child who will finally once and for all crush Satan. And so let's dive into this as we look at it. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. 
And so I want to begin with this simple town. And, and, and as we walk through the book of Luke, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the details of these things because I believe there's truth in the details. And we don't want to just pass over. It would be easy just to read this and be like, Gabriel was sent from God. Okay, an angel came down, sent from God to a, a region of Galilee, to a city called Nazareth. Great. All right, let's move on. Let's continue to see. But there's there's, there's points in why Luke, who is a phenomenal storyteller, would include these details as he is writing out this narrative in order for us to understand. And so why include Nazareth? Why even talk about that? Because the, the, the reality here is that Nazareth was, was nothing, all right? Nazareth was nothing, and, and this is amazing to me, because Nazareth is only mentioned here in Luke. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament outside of Scripture. It's not mentioned in the Apocrypha. It's not mentioned in the Talmud. It's not mentioned in the ancient historian Josephus' record because no one important came from or went to Nazareth. Like, no, there was no reason to talk about Nazareth because it was simply nothing. But if you were to go to Nazareth today, you would get a false impression of what it actually is because Nazareth today is, is filled of several hundred thousand people. All right, it's, it's uh, 60% Muslim, 30% Jewish, 10% Christian. But in Jesus' day, it was filled of, of dozens of people. All right, maybe 50, maybe 100, at most a couple of hundred people. I mean, it's a, it's a very small, rural, simple town. It was between two cities. And so it was the kind of town that people would just pass through, but they wouldn't necessarily venture to. And so if you've ever gone on like a long road trip and you're um, going from one destination to the other and you pit stop somewhere to grab gas real quick, but it's just like one gas station and really nothing else, like that's what Nazareth is. You can stop, fill up, grab a hot dog from the gas station if, if you're that kind of person. Um, and and, and you, this is what Nazareth was. Like there was nothing else there. And, and even doing some archaeological digs in the actual city of Nazareth, when they found Old Town Nazareth, uh, the homes were only like 500 to 600 square feet, and a portion of the home was even designated for livestock. So it was like an attached barn, if you will. And so this is very small, one well in the town, very small, uh, not a lot of people, not a lot of reason to go there. Even uh, Nathaniel later says in John 1.46, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And it wasn't like an honest question. It was a rhetorical question. He, he's, he's saying, like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like, there's nothing good there. There's no reason to go there. It's, it's not a place that we would venture to, nor really include in the story of, of our Savior of this, this Christ who's going to be born, who we've been looking for and longing for for thousands of years at this point, like why would we even consider Nazareth? And this is one of the things you need to learn about our God. You can't put him into a box and predict how he's going to work. You just can't. Like if this was today, we're expecting God to be born in like a, a rich suburb, nice boutique town. I'm kind of thinking like Zionsville, all right? And, and Zionsville is appropriate because Mount Zion, if you know anything about Scripture, is the hill of Jerusalem in which the city of David was built, all right? And so like if Jesus is going to be born anywhere, let's go to Zionsville, all right? It's literally named after what you're going to rule, okay? And so that's kind of what we think when we think of where he should be born. But the reality is, is he's born, incomparable to Nazareth, 
Newtown, Indiana. How many people have heard of Newtown, Indiana? All right. You've only, if you raise your hand, it's only because you visited Old 55 Distillery that's out there. Um, Newtown, Indiana has a population of 256 people, and the post office is also the gas station. All right, like it's that kind of town. So you can like mail a letter and grab a hot dog at the same time, and, and, and that's what this kind of place is. It, it literally is only made up or it keeps afloat because of cornfields and, and the wonderful distillery that's out there. Um, but God chooses to incorporate in his narrative of redemptive history people in places that we would not choose to incorporate. He, he flips the script. This is what we call kingdom economics, all right? How God does things that we would not choose to do, all right? He's always picking the least person. He's always choosing the last person, you know, that, that joins the softball team or whatever it looks like. The one that you would not think is the one that he chooses. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's what he's doing with Nazareth. That's why Jesus wasn't born in Rome, all right? He was not born, like he, and for that matter, Rome was actually last to receive the gospel according to the book of Acts. Because again, God goes to the least of these, a simple town, Nazareth, and he says, I'm gonna do something miraculous in this place. Let's keep going. As we move from a simple town to a simple couple, Gabriel appears to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now here we meet Mary and Joseph. Historically speaking, a lot has been said about them. All right, we're, we're reminded of them literally every Christmas season when you dust off the boxes and you pull out the nativity scene and you set it up in your house. Like you, you, you are seeing Mary and Joseph every year around this, this nativity scene. And so in, in some ways, we feel like we know them. But do we really know them or have we just been decided based on Christmas culture and who Mary and Joseph actually are. And, and we have like several nativity scenes that, that get put out each year. We have a kid's version of one. We lost Joseph. Um, not exactly sure where he is, which I think is biblical because after Jesus goes to the temple when he's 12 years old, we don't hear anything else about Joseph in Scripture. All right, He, he just gets lost and no idea what happens to Joseph, all right? So I've replaced him with this like John Deere tractor driving farmer or whatever, which I still think is appropriate. Um, but that's just beside the point. That's free. So who are these two people? Who are Mary? Who are Joseph? And I'll start with Joseph um, because, again, God just chooses insignificant people. Joseph was a young man. Most theologians believe that he was probably in his teenage years because in that day, they married literally between the ages of 12 to 16. All right, it, it's, it's mind-blowing at the age in which they would engage or get betrothed and, and be married. And he was also poor and a carpenter. He lived in Nazareth, and he was from the kingly line of David. Now, if you're thinking, well, if he's from the lineage of David, why is he poor? Where'd the money go? Well, if you were to trace the lineage 
back in Matthew's gospel, you're going to see that from David to Joseph is 28 generations. A, a lot happens in 28 generations. And a lot that happened in those 28 generations did not go well for them. Okay? Did not go well for them. So there's nothing left to show for where they came from Solomon. Now, one of the things that I love about in Solomon being David's son, one of the things I love about this and incorporating this in the lineage is you get the pendulum swing of what God is willing to use in his narrative of redemptive history. You get the wealthiest man who has ever lived on this history in the face of the earth, King Solomon. All right. Like when they talk about the treasure that he had, and this is the reason why the books like the book of Ecclesiastes was written, was because he's looking at, hey, I've had everything that you could possibly possess when it comes to materials, riches, and wealth. And it didn't mean anything. And then at the same time in the lineage, you can go all the way down to a poor man like Joseph, who has nothing to show for his life other than I can build some things as a carpenter. But I'm from a poor town. Poor family, nothing to show for it, but I'm excited. I want to get married, and I'm going to live a life, and I'm going to build a life for myself. It just shows you that God is woven into the narrative of redemptive history anybody and everybody who's willing to trust him and believe in him. And so where you come from or what you have does not dictate whether or not God chooses you, but just belief and trust in Him and willing to surrender your life to Him, He is able to then use you and work you into His narrative history. And so this is what we know of Joseph. A lot has occurred. Again, young guy, probably barely you know, having a driver's license for the donkeys in the area. Um, meets Mary probably at a young age. There's, there's not a lot of options, all right? If it's a town of barely a couple hundred people, uh, he's probably known her from a very young age. In some ways, Joseph and Mary kind of remind me of John and Miranda, which I can mention them because they're not here today. Uh, they were supposed to be doing baby dedication, but their oldest, Marshall, got sick. But I'm pretty sure, and someone can correct me, I think they've been dating since they were like in fourth grade. Like, do I remember, remember that correctly? I don't think they know a time that they've not been together. And like that kind of reminds me of Joseph and Mary when it comes to like their type of town and the type of culture where you just like grow up in grade school with one another and like you got three options and like I'm going with this option. All right. Like that's that's kind of where they're at. Uh, but anyways, that's Joseph. And that's honestly, that's all we know about Joseph. All right. There, there's nothing else that we know about Joseph. As for Mary, I want you to imagine this. Because of Luke's investigative research, like we can infer that Luke actually probably sat down with Mary. That, that as she's in older age at this point, and he's going on this investigative research, he probably, if she was still residing in Nazareth, went back to Nazareth, sat down with her for hours or a couple of days, and is asking her questions. Like, hey, were you really a virgin? Like, I've, I've heard that that's true. Were you really a virgin? And like, can I corroborate that? Like, did you have doctors? Did you have other friends and family? Like, can I ask them questions? And as he's putting together all of this research in order to write the books of Luke and the books of and the book of Acts, as he's writing these things, this is what he is responding, and this is what he's recording out of all of his research. And he sits down and he begins with this one thing. We learn that she was betrothed. We learn that she was betrothed. And we hear that word, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to us because we do marriage differently in our culture. 
All right? Betrothal was a legal pledge to be married. It's weightier than just an engagement. All right? It's weightier than that. It was actually a legal act where you had to get certification in order to get engaged, in order to be betrothed. It wasn't just like going to the courthouse and getting it, but it was also having the approval of your family. And so the two families would come together, and this is where we kind of get the idea of courtship. The two families would come together with legal action as well, representatives, and they would say, as they are observing the couple, and as they are seeing that they are falling in love, they would say, we think this is a good thing. We think this is God's idea. We think that this is uh, God's blessing, and so we are going to put our stamp of approval on this, and we are going to say, yes, we believe that these two should engage and enter in into a betrothal in order for them to then spend the next year planning for the actual official wedding ceremony. And so what they would do at that point, they would get together and they would have actually a betrothal ceremony where they would bring in a priest or a rabbi. Uh, There would be scripture reading, there would be praying, there would be singing, there would be a, a, a little ceremony. And they would actually enter into, with the whole family putting an approval on it, a betrothal. And it was, like I said, this was legally binding, all right? To actually break a betrothal, you would need to get a certificate of divorce in order to do that. We know that because when you look at this same parallel in Matthew, when Joseph finds out that she's pregnant, he's like, um, that, that usually doesn't happen without something happening. And so he's kind of confused a bit, and he's like, I, I, I think I need to divorce her at this point. And so he's willing to actually break off the betrothal, the engagement, in order to, to not enter into this. And then obviously an angel stops him in the place and, and kind of fills him in on, hey, uh, this is what's actually going on. But this is weightier. It's deeper than what we are used to. And so she's, she's excited. She's planning her wedding Um, I know that there's ladies in our church who are planning our weddings, planning their weddings, not our weddings, planning their weddings. Um, I know that there there are ladies in our church who just came out of wedding season, who just got married as well. And it is an exciting time, but I think there's some things that we need to look at in this, all right? that, like, that's kind of what Mary's thinking about. Uh, yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'm going to stop there. I'll come back to that. Um, but what they would do is they would not ultimately... They would do it in this way, all right? Our culture says when you get engaged, you move in together, you experience one another, and then eventually you kind of just sign the, sign the document and you're good to go. This culture is you are to, in betrothal, remain separate. You don't live together. You don't sleep together. You don't engage in intimacy, and you wait for that official day. And that official day comes in the wedding day. Now, when it comes to Mary, and I'll have more on that here in a minute, But when it comes to Mary, I want to also take some moments and pause as we walk through this to be able to hit on some kind of cultural moments that we have. And we'll be doing this as we kind of walk through Luke as well, where we'll just be preaching the text. But as the text also is very applicable to just current topics that are going on in our world or current uh, uh, denominations or theologies that are going on, we'll pause and we'll just address those things in the moment as well. When it comes to Mary, the Catholics have sort of cornered the market on Mary, right? Like, like they, they, Mary is sort of their specialty, if you will. Um, all the pictures I've seen of Mary aren't very accurate. And so I'm going to show you one as, as an example here, if we can pull it up here. All right, so most of our pictures of Mary do come from just historical Catholic art, all right? 
historical Catholic art. And, and what they do is they've adorned her in a way that she's not actually adorned. All right? Like, Mary does not wear a crown of gold. All right? Mary is not welding a, a, a golden scepter as well. Um, Jesus doesn't usually look like that either, you know, dressed in a white gown as a baby as well. She doesn't have angels worshiping her around her. She's not sitting on a throne. I mean, we got to remember, like, Mary is from Nazareth. All right, she's living in Nazareth. She's, she's not wealthy. She's not prominent. She's not in her 30s, all right? Like, it's, it's, you got to think, like, she's, women were allowed to be married or betrothed at 12 and married at 13. And so we need to think, I'm sorry, Linnea, we need to think like Linnea, okay? Like, that's what Mary is more kind of in that age range when it comes to, to what she actually looks like. You also need to think, again, she's poor, she's impoverished. She's probably wearing peasant girl dress. Um, she's probably dirty, wearing dirty sandals because she's walking back and forth to the one well that's in Nazareth to get water to bring back to their 500 square foot home. Like, we can't picture her like this. And at the same time, even in heaven, we should not picture her like this. The reason why is because if we were in heaven and we were to come to Mary in this way, she would tell us, don't do that. Don't do that because that's not what I am and that's not what I represent. Now, how did we get to this place? And I think Luke helps us with this here. How did we get to this place? Look at verse 28. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now it says she was greatly troubled, which is not a shock. All right, First, because if Gabriel likely appeared as a man, and the reason why we believe he likely appeared as a man is because that's also the way that he appeared to Daniel um, in one of his dreams. So that would have been startling because men would not customarily approach an engaged woman in private, all right? Like, that's just not the way that they would do it in this custom. Additionally, we hear that she has found favor with God, all right? Gabriel shows up and gives this great announcement, God has favored you. He's, he's, he's elected you. He's chosen you. He's, he's looked over the earth, and he's favored you, Mary. Do you remember hearing in the synagogue that a virgin would give birth to a child? That's you, Mary. Like, you're the one that God has chosen. Like, he's gone thousands of years at this point, 700 years since the last announcement, and you're going to be the one that he favors in this moment. Now, do you know what the word favor literally means? Like, in its original text, it means grace. Grace. Undeserved grace. Unmerited grace. She didn't do anything for God to look upon her and say, uh, you, you, you have perfectly memorized whatever scriptures you have access to. Because if you realize, they, they, they didn't have what we have here. All right, They did not have a full 66 book canon. All right, Luke is still doing investigative research and hasn't even written the book of Luke when he's talking to her. 
She's got bits and pieces of the New Testament that's been written up to a certain point. She has bits and pieces of the Old Testament fragments if their family was lucky to have any types of copies. But likely what they would do, the only time they would ever hear is when they went to the synagogue and had a priest that would actually just preach and, and, and declare the Word of God or read the Word of God from the Old Testament canon. And so she's basing it all off of, of memory of just remembering what's been written. Like, there's nothing in her or in her, her lifestyle that would have allowed her to merit herself to earn God's favor. Nothing. And so our first question is, why then would God favor her? And the, question, or the answer is simple. Because He's good. Because He's good. And because He chose her. Because He's simply chose her. God could have looked down and said, I'll pick a, a wealthy young woman or I'll pick an affluent, successful, significant woman or I'll pick a beautiful town. I'll, I'll pick a palace so that the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, could grow up in affluence and wealth and prominence and significance and have the best education and tour and travel. And instead he said, Mary, I choose you. Like that's amazing to me. And this is why we hate man-made religion. Religion is all about what you do to earn God's favor. And Christianity is all about God favoring you by grace. Taking nobody from nowhere and giving them love. And that's what he does. That's why we can't stop singing about how wonderful this God is and that he tells her, you're going to give birth to a son. You need to name him Jesus, which means God saves me from my sins. Her son will be her savior. More on Mary in a minute, but let's look at her response, a simple faith. Her response is very important because when we looked last week um, at Zechariah, the, the priest's response, his, his wasn't the best, and God muted him for it, all right? Like God, God silenced him for it. His response was more like, how can this be? I'm an old man. My wife is old. We're both old. I, I don't know how this works. I, I don't know if you know this, but old people that are barren, they don't have babies. Like he just kept talking too much. And God muted him. God rebuked his disbelief of what Gabriel came and told him. And he rebuked him for it. Mary's question is different than Zechariah's question and, and arguing kind of complaints that he had with Gabriel in that moment. Here was Mary's response. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? This is verse 34. I know I'm skipping a few verses. I'll get to that. Mary said in 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? So a little work here. She doesn't have unbelief. She has questions. Some of you are here. You say, I believe in Jesus. He's my God. He died for my sins. He rose for my salvation. But I do have some questions. And I've met with many people today who have asked, if I believe in Jesus but I still have questions, am I still a believer? Am I, still, am, I, am I a Christian? I would say, absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Like, when, when I became a believer in Jesus, which was around the age of 14, um, I, I knew, like, the bullet points, all right? Jesus was good. Jesus was sinless. Uh, Jesus came to die for me, and, and he did that because I was a sinner, and I needed forgiveness in order to be back in a relationship with God. And this is, this is what God did. And, and, and so by believing that, I became a Christian. 
But I had, I had tons of questions. But I didn't know what questions to ask. I would actually say today that I have more questions than I had when I became a believer at the age of 14. Because as I continue to walk through the narrative and I walk through the story, I'm like, how can a donkey in the Old Testament speak? How does that work? How can water just come out of rocks? Like, how can God take my sin and supernaturally place it on His Son Jesus and then take Jesus' righteousness and supernaturally place it on me? Like, how does that exchange work? I've got questions. I believe it to be true. But I still have questions on logistics. And God's okay with that. He's okay with me having questions on logistics. And the reason why I think he has, he's okay with our logistics is because that's exactly how the angel answers Mary. He provides her with some logistics. Because Mary's asking this question. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but virgins don't have babies. So how's this going to work? Like she believes that God is going to give her Jesus to raise. And she asked the question, how? How's that going to work? And the angel answered her this way. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing, I mean, Nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, that's all he had to say. When she said, how would this be? Because I'm a virgin. All he had to say was nothing's impossible with God. But he does give her more than that. He says the Holy Spirit is going to be the active agent in this. What he's going to do, just like supernaturally God takes our sins away and gives us righteousness, he says supernaturally I'm going to give you a baby in your womb. That's just going to happen. Do I have the power to do that? Uh, yes, I'm God. All right, I spoke and oceans formed. I spoke and mountains sprouted up. I spoke and, and literally humans molded out of dirt and came into being. I spoke and a rib was removed and I made a woman out of a rib. When I speak, things happen. And all of that was out of nothing. If I can create everything from nothing, just the word that comes out of my mouth, I think I can place a baby in a womb that has not had physical intimacy before. That's exactly what God is saying here. And that's exactly how he's answering. It, 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 it kind of blows my mind at sometimes when people are like, man, I, I believe, I believe in God. I believe that he created. I believe that he did all these things. I, I'm just kind of struggling with the virgin birth. And I'm like, why? Like, if he can part a Red Sea and an entire, like, group of people, an entire nation could just walk through it on dry land. Like, if he can just tell the storms to stop and they listen, I think he can put a baby in a womb without there being physical intercourse. Nothing will be impossible with God. God can do whatever He wants. And honestly, like that's why we're able to be joyful, to be happy, to be hopeful. It's why we're able to sing and pray because our God is the God of the impossible. God could take nobodies from nowhere and raise up churches. Like That's what He does 
Nothing is impossible with him. And that's where we put all of our hope. That's, that should be the foundation of every prayer that we pray. Is God, I can't do this. I can't figure this out. I don't understand the logistics, but I believe you are capable. I believe that you can do anything that we consider impossible. And that's the foundation of my prayer. I believe you. And I know that you're powerful and that you can accomplish this. And so what was Mary's response to his answer? She says this in verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here's this simple woman from a simple town, and she has a simple faith. She has a simple faith, but it's a sincere and simple faith. She, she knows very little. She, she doesn't, have, again, she doesn't have the New Testament canon. She has bits and pieces of scripture that she treasures in her heart, but here's what she has. She has faith. She believes what God says. She believes what God says. So many of us have far more information than her and far less faith in it. It's just true. Some of you think, I, I need to learn a lot more. And maybe you do, but first things first, do you believe what you've already been taught? Do you believe what you already know? Mary knows very little, but she trusts it all. It's amazing, and that's why I believe Martin Luther said rightly that perhaps the greatest miracle is faith. The greatest miracle is faith. She actually trusts God. She actually takes him at his word. She responds and says, I'm the Lord's servant. Some of your translations will say handmaiden. That's the lowest servant. Like that's what she's considering herself, a bond servant. She says, whatever he wants, that's what I want. I will serve as he calls. Guys, this is amazing. Some of us have a life charted out for ourselves. And we want God to bless it and make it happen. Like we've, we've planned it out. And then we kind of hand it over and we say, God, will you sign this? Will you make this happen? And if God should rewrite our script, we're not very happy about it. Right? Like we've planned it out. And if it doesn't go that way, we're not happy. Now she has a script for her life. She's going to marry Joseph. They're going to have a great wedding. Dress is going to fit. They're going to consummate our marriage and, and, and then they're going to have babies and everyone's going to think that they're just good people in this small town of Nazareth. They're going to build a life for themselves. Like that's her plan. And the angel shows up and says, new script. And Mary says, well, whatever the Lord wants, he gets to write the script for my life. She just responds with simple faith. I love him. I trust him. I'm his servant. I think it's amazing and so we read that, and we may culturally miss what she's willing to give up. Because again, we have our beautiful nativity scene of what we view them. But I need you to see this. I need you to see what God is, is doing for her that might have some cultural consequences that wouldn't necessarily be what we would write for our script. It shows that she does not idolize marriage. She does not idolize her identity. She does not idolize comfort and security. She's willing to open her hands and forego all of that and let it be taken from her. Like there was a provision in the law that actually, and I, said, I mentioned this earlier, that he could divorce her. 
It says in Matthew's gospel that he was going to until literally the angel showed up and told him not to. So what she's saying when she says, Lord, I'm your servant, she's saying, God, if, if I don't get to marry Joseph, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. How many of you, if God showed up and said, no, you, you need to let that go? Now, if you're married, don't say, I would be okay with that. All right, you, you already said yes. But that's what she's saying. I'm, I'm totally fine with that. That was Mary's response. There is also a provision in the law to make an example of her for all the other young women. Because here's the reality. If, if no one else in Nazareth at this moment is believing that she's, like when they realize and understand that she's pregnant, the majority of them are going to be looking at this and saying, yeah, we're not believing your story. We're not believing your story. So there was actually a provision in the law to make an example of her for all the other young men. They would strip her naked. They would redress her in rags. They would abuse her verbally and physically. They would tie her up in the town center. They would call her scandalous and derogatory names. And they would leave her there for a good long while so that all the other women would get the idea that being a fornicator and an adulteress is unacceptable. And she's saying, Lord... I'm willing to be your servant. I'm okay with that. I'll let go of Joseph and my reputation. So she's willing to let go of her comfort, her security, her identity, her reputation, her marriage, and she simply has faith. She trusts that God is good and that he's going to be good to her. To her. I'm the servant of the Lord. And what happens from this point forward is that history and the theologians and traditions and the agendas kind of set in there some make way too much of Mary, and some make way too little of Mary. I, as I, I know I'm, I'm going to pick on the Catholics here for this, so if you're there, I'm sorry. But I, I, think, um, I think it's good to draw in on this because, again, if you get it wrong, Scripture's clear. We need to be corrected. And I'm not just saying that, like, I love, I, I love Catholics. All right? I'm not saying that I hate Catholics. But what I am saying is that if you get it wrong, it needs to be corrected. Are there things that we get wrong that need to be corrected? 100%. And I, and I think that's why we, again, are, are, we refer to ourselves as reformed. And what I mean by that is that we're always trying to get back to what the Bible is actually teaching, not what we think and have created based on culture or our own opinions or our own ideas, what Christianity should be. We're not trying to reinvent it. We're trying to get back to what it was. We're trying to reform back to what it was. We don't want to add to Scripture. And what the Roman Catholics have done and what Orthodox Christianity has done is they've added too much to Mary. And I think, it's in, I think it's good for us to know so that as we have these conversations with our Catholic friends, we're able to pull this out and be able to have conversation. They tend to make too much of Mary. They, here, for example, um, they will say that not only was Mary able to give birth to Jesus as a virgin, but her mother was also a virgin too. That's a part of their doctrine. Not true. There's no evidence for that. They say as Jesus was sinless, Mary was also sinless too, which is not true. You'll see that actually coming up in one of our chapters, uh, she goes to the temple to offer a sacrifice, which is what sinners do to forgive their sins. 
Right, so she's a sinner going to offer a sacrifice to forgive her sins. In addition to that, some would say as well that she was ever virgin, that she never had any intimacy with Joseph, which just isn't true. The author of the book of James, the author of the book of Jude, would have issues with that because they're brothers of Jesus. Mary's their mother. They might try to figure out, Mom, Dad, if you're ever virgin, how did we get here? As well, the Pope has said in recent years that she was a co-mediatrix, a co-redemptor, that she is our co-mediator, our co-redeemer along with Jesus. It's just not true at all. The Bible says there's one mediator between us and God. It's the man, her son, Christ Jesus. Mary doesn't connect us to God. Jesus does. That's why we see Mary in the early church worshiping her son as God in the opening chapters of Acts. Additionally, she's not co-redeemer. It's not that we will stand before God and say, thank you for saving me through Jesus and Mary. That's not how it's going to work. If you say that, Mary will be again shaking her head. Don't do that. Don't pray to me. Don't worship me. Don't venerate me. This is actually a prayer verbatim from Roman Catholic doctrine to pray to Mary. It says this, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Now you might hear that and you might sound like, oh, that sounds sweet. But it's an unacceptable and it's a dead prayer because it prays that Mary is the dispenser of grace, not the recipient of grace. She is not the dispenser of grace. Her son Jesus is. So they would make way too much of Mary, adding to the scriptures, putting in superstition and folklore that doesn't belong there. Mary is not our deliverer. She delivered our deliverer. That's it. She's a servant of the Lord. And then others will overreact to that and they'll make way too much or way too little of Mary. Some Protestants don't even really speak of Mary. Some churches hardly ever mention her name other than, again, just she birthed Jesus and that's it. Let's move along. Just sort of kind of skip over her. There was one noteworthy young pastor in this country who wrote a book basically saying that maybe the virgin conception and the birth were taken from pagan mythology just to kind of make the story fluffed up a little bit more. Maybe Jesus' mother was actually a lying adulteress. And if so, what's the big loss? Well, if the Bible lies about Jesus and it lies about Mary's virginity and that she raised a boy who says he's God, that does affect the story considerably. Considerably. So we shouldn't belittle Mary and her testimony. So we don't make too much of Mary. We don't want to dishonor her. We want to believe what the scriptures say about her. And what do they say? Man, they say that she loved the Lord. She was not a perfect woman, but she was a woman of faith. A woman of faith. And in the most amazing moment of her humble life, she was willing to let go of her reputation, her marriage, her comfort and security, so that she could just simply serve the Lord. So that she could lovingly serve Jesus. Let me say this to you. Mary should not be an object of our faith, but she should be an example of faith for us. That's what she should be. She should be an example of faith 
for us to serve Jesus like she did, to have the same kind of heartfelt devotion as she had, an affection for Jesus as she did. Not the object of our faith, but a wonderful example of faith in Jesus. For Jesus is our significant Savior. Last point, verses 31, 32, and 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, I don't want you to just think that I'm going to skim over those three massive verses. Um, I'm actually going to cover them next week when we talk about John the Baptist and Jesus having kind of a play date um, when Mary comes to, to meet with Elizabeth. And I say play date, they're both still in womb, so they're not really playing together. Um, but there is a reaction that happens when they come together where John the Baptist leaps for joy in uh, Elizabeth's womb as Jesus comes in, as he's in Mary's womb. And I'm going to preach on these three verses as they are revealing the reason why John the Baptist is leaping in the womb. And so she says there in verse 31, and this is where I'm actually going to kind of lead us into communion. Or as Luke says in 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Where I want to lead us in communion is looking at just that name. That name Jesus. Names matter. Names have meaning. When having a baby, one of the biggest decisions you have to make is, is naming them. <laughs> because it's, it, it's a permanent thing. You don't get to wait and say, well, he sort of acts like a Chad, so let's name him Chad. Like, you don't get to wait and figure that out. You don't get to say, like, well, they're like a Karen, so just name him a Karen. If your name's Karen, I'm sorry. Um, but oftentimes, you make the decision sight unseen. Like, when, when they're still in the womb, and you give them names that you either like or they have meaning behind them. For example, my oldest son is Ezra James Gibbs. Um, if, if you were to read his name, it's both like we thought through this, all right? So it's Old Testament, New Testament, and then obviously my last name. And so it's Ezra means with help, all right, with God's help. James being a book where the theme is faith producing works. And so the idea of reading his name is uh, with God's help, faith produces works. Like that's what we are praying for his life as he is continuing to grow up. Now, if you add the meaning of uh, my last name, Gibbs, it is uh, with God's help, faith produces work for this bright hostage. Um, that is actually what Gibbs means is a bright hostage. So it's um, interesting nonetheless. But names matter. And so Mary naming him Jesus has a meaning behind it. And it's perfect because he just walked in. Um, not Jesus, but the bright hostage. Um, <laughs> Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Jehovah is salvation. What she's saying when they're asking, Mary, what are we going to call him? And actually, typically, it's the man who names, but the angel Gabriel says, this is what you're going to call him. You're going you're to name him Jesus. And so when Joseph may have thrown out some names you know, at that time, and Mary said, no, it's going to be this one, because that's what God told us to name him. It has a meaning. The child will save you from your sins. This child that you're about to deliver is going to deliver you. As the song goes, Mary, did you know? <laughs> they, 
that your baby boy will someday walk on waters. Mary, did you know that the son you'll soon deliver will soon deliver you? When you give birth to him, a sign of life, he's going to go on to die for you in order to actually grant you life. To actually grant you life. He'll do it as Genesis 3.15 prophesied. He's going to crush Satan's head. But in order to crush Satan's head, his, his heel is going to be crushed as well. He, he's going to go through a bruising. He's going to go through a torture. He's going to go through a death himself. That's going to be temporary. He's going to crush his body. He's going to shed his blood so that we would not experience the crushing of our bodies and the shedding of our blood for eternity but rather that we would be forgiven of our sins and brought back into relationship with God the Father. This son is here. This is, this is the, the birth announcement of God coming as a man to ultimately live a perfect life that we could not live, earning for us the righteousness so that we don't have to earn it ourselves. And then he's going to go to the cross and he's going to crush his body. He's going to shed his blood. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be tortured. He's going to wear a crown of thorns that presses into his skull. He's going to bleed. He is going to experience the full weight of God's wrath poured out onto him. The hatred of God towards our sin. Every poor decision that we make, every evil thought that we have, every deceitful lie that we speak, all of those things are going to be placed on this beautiful child, Jesus. This name given to him sets the trajectory for his life. He's not just going to, to excel at all the sports, which he probably could have. He's Jesus. He does everything perfectly. But he's going to perfectly live for us in order to then go and perfectly die for us. So that he can then raise three days later from the grave and raise us out of our sin. Raise us out of our death. Raise us out of our eternal punishment that is due. That is due. And rightfully due. We deserve it. We deserve it. But Jesus comes into the scene and he says, no. No. Not today, Satan. <laughs> Not today. I want you to go ahead and stand. And as you stand, if you don't have the elements, Leah, you can go back to the table and grab them. And then I want you to come back, and we're actually kind of going to do a little, little exercise with this this time. We do communion every week, but I want you to think a little bit more on it this time. So as you grab your communion, you come back to your table. Take <laughs> your table. It is the, the proverbial table. I want you to think. I know I had you stand. I'm going to actually have you sit again. All right, we're, we're going Catholic, all right? So stand, sit, stand, sit. I want you to go ahead and, and uh, take the wafer out and have the wafer in one hand. And I want you to have the juice in the other hand.
Isaiah 7.14 when he prophesied that this son would be born from this virgin. Later on in Isaiah 53, he also continues to prophesy about this child. That this child would grow up to be the suffering servant. And that this child, the suffering servant, would take all of our iniquities and would place them on himself. And he would be crushed for our iniquities. He would be bruised for us. And he would be ultimately led to the slaughter. To the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And so what I want you to do right now, because I know like it, we are a church that believes once saved, always saved. So when you got saved, whenever it was, that's God's grace to you. That's God's favor to you. God came down and redeemed you and saved you. And that's once for all. Your past sins are forgiven. Your present sins are forgiven. Your future sins are forgiven. But can we also still uh, understand the fact that when we continue to sin, when we continue to mess up, whether you messed up yesterday, whether you had an argument with your spouse or you didn't do what you were supposed to, or whether you did something at work that you weren't supposed to, whether you, there was someone who um, cut you off and you let a word fly or whatever it was on the, on the interstate, whatever it was this week, there were moments, and you can think of them, you can bring them into mind right now. There were moments where you sinned and you felt bad about it. You felt that guilt. You felt that shame. You felt that grief in the moment. And it might be if you've got children, it might be if you, you, the way that you reacted towards them when they were being children. And you're like, I should not have handled it that way. Like You feel the weight of sin. In your hands right now are representing exactly what Jesus did in order to remove that from your heart, from your mind, from your conscience, from your life, for past, present, future. We do this every week because it is reminding us that the guilt that we feel when we sin is gone and it's removed. And that Jesus has, that God has adopted us and brought us into the family and that he loves us and that he delights in us. And so what I want you to do right now is I want you to imagine whatever those sins are this week that you committed. Maybe you're, you're, you're pulling them to mind right now. It's those things that kind of haunt you on a daily basis. As you look at that wafer that's in your hand, I want you to just take this mental note and just place them on the wafer. The lie that I did or the argument that I had or the reaction that I had towards my kids or or the, the way I treated a certain person, or maybe it was a, a lustful thought that I had, or maybe it was a, a deceitful lie that I gave, or whatever it is, I want you to place it on that wafer in this moment, and I want you to think, Jesus took this sin, and he crushed himself on the cross in order to remove it from me, to take it from me. And as he's taking it from me, what he also does is he has to pay a price in order for God to to literally purchase it from you and to remove it from you and to forgive you forever. And so what he also does is he then pours out his blood as payment. For that sin that's being crushed, he pours out his blood as payment. So I want you to think about the juice that is in your hand right now. This is God paying for your sin. In full, past, present, and future. 
So I want you to imagine that. I want you to, Jesus is bringing the money of his blood to the temple, to, the, to God as the high priest, and he's bringing it to him and he's saying, I am paying in full for their sins. Here it is. And he pours out his blood. And we're remembering that in the moment. The sins are being crushed and the payment is being paid. And we get to receive it. We get to receive it as a gift. As a gift. Think about that right now. Meditate on that right now. Whatever those sins are this week, think about them in your hands. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take that wafer right now with the sins that are on it, that are being crushed on Jesus at the cross, and receive it. Partake right now. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Receive the payment right now of his blood being shed for you, for all of your sins. Partake. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. We thank you so much for your favor, for your grace that has come through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have woven this throughout our entire history. That you've prophesied this from the very beginning, that there would be a son born through a miraculous event. And that his name would be Jesus and that he would come to take away our sins, freeing us from that bondage and that slavery, freeing us to be able to worship you in your goodness and in your character and in your pursuit of us. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and let's thank him in worship as we continue on. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at